Well, thank you. My name, oops, my name is Phil. I'm one of the pastors on the team here. What's happening here? What's going on with this? Is that right? Is that good? Okay. Don't close your eyes at me, Shay. I saw that. Like a parent, patiently talking to a toddler. Um, it's funny, um, human nature's funny. Um, we added extra chairs today because we thought, you know, it's Easter Sunday, there's probably bound to be a few extras and you also sat as far back as you possibly could. <laughs> like we were at some kind of comedy show and if you sat at the front, I might pick you out or something. Well, joke's on you, I'm gonna pick out the people, no, I'm not gonna do that. I wanted to start that, um, our time together with, with that reading of the actual, the Easter story, the, the Sunday morning, because I wanted to just to remember what we're talking about today. Because today is a day filled with joy and with worship and with praise. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for you. Fear is gone. He is risen. Jesus took our punishment for the sin, the rebellion that separates us from God's perfect love. And he placed it upon himself. But darkness didn't win. Three days after he was killed, that first Easter Sunday at daybreak, Jesus rose again. He defeated death, fulfilling the covenant God made with his people. We've been in uh, this sermon series called, Who Do You Say I Am? And Jesus asked this to his disciples, and he, he asks us the same question in light of the resurrection, in light of an empty tomb in light of what Jesus has done for us and how he responds to us. And he asks us to respond to him. We see the disciples in scripture. We see Jesus, their leader, their friend, their savior. He's risen from the dead. Like, hallelujah, the cause for celebration is huge. And I, and I tend to think that the emotional journey of that first Easter weekend went a, a little like this, that, that Maundy Thursday, there was, there was confusion because Jesus said he was going to be betrayed and he's going to be handed over to his enemies. And then there's great fear because it happens. He is handed over. And then on Good Friday, there's sadness, an overwhelming sense of grief and pain and probably still fear because Jesus is dead. He's been killed. And then Easter Sunday comes around, and there's an inexpressible joy. Jesus has risen. There's hope again amidst the despair. And then, in my mind, they all lived happily ever after and baked a honey-roasted ham. But if you look at Scripture, that's not actually quite how it went. Days later, the disciples are still confused. They've seen the risen Jesus but they're still not quite sure what to do about it or how to respond to the resurrection or how to answer that question, who do you say I am? So I, wanna, I want us to pick up the narrative in the Gospels actually a few days after the events of the Resurrection Sunday that Jasmine just read. So let me pray for a second and then we're going to jump in. Jesus, words cannot express our gratitude and our praise for what you have done. So be with us again now as we learn more about you. Reveal yourself to us in these next few moments. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So we're in John 21, and the disciples have now seen the risen Jesus twice. Verse 1 says this. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. 
Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. So the disciples, we pause there, the disciples are faced with this roller coaster of emotion. They're confused. So they go back to doing what they did before. They go back to fishing. They can't sit still. They're impatient. And so Peter says, I've got to do something, anything. I've got to do something. I know, let's go fishing. So they went out in the boat and they caught nothing all night. They spend the night catching nothing. Now, in John's gospel, night is, is really significant. It's a place, darkness is a place to hide when someone doesn't understand or when deception or evil is at work, when fear and confusion rule. And here are the disciples at night in the darkness, in the shadows of their misunderstanding and confusion, just desperately trying to regain control and do the one thing they think they're good at, but they're failing. The night before Jesus died, he told his followers, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's what Jesus' followers, his closest friends, learned this very night. They, they learned that apart from Jesus, they can do nothing. Here they are in a boat without Jesus, and they are achieving nothing. They are powerless without him. And I think we can relate to the disciples because I think life can often be so confusing and so frustrating. And we find ourselves in situations where we don't know what to do. We're frustrated with life. We're frustrated by ourselves, with our own failure. We're disappointed when we don't achieve something that we set out to do. And then we experience a lack of fulfillment when we do achieve it. We run around trying to do something, trying to do anything, because fear abounds when we're not in control. And at times, we may feel like we're achieving a lot, and that there are moments of, of contentment and of joy, of happiness, but ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, without Jesus, we're in the dark, we're in the night, we're fishing, we're catching nothing, because apart from him, we can do nothing. It's so easy to think that we can make life work on our own, money, career, status, relationships, success, family even. We think that if we're busy and conscientious, well, God will understand. He'll bless us for that thing, even if we don't include him. But Jesus says, busyness will amount to nothing. And that's where a new story for the disciples begins. You see, they're attempting to take control over their situation, but they're cut off from Jesus. They're powerless to catch anything. They're adrift in the darkness until... The sun rises. All night they've been fishing and they've caught nothing. But there's hope in those words. The darkness of the night is about to give way to the bright light of a new day. Verse 4. At dawn, at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. And he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did. And they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. 
The words of Jesus transform the emptiness of the nets into an abundance. They don't just get lucky and catch one or two. No, when they respond to Jesus' words, when they follow his words, the nets are bursting with fish. It's a massive miracle, and it turns everything around. The presence of the risen Jesus changes everything. The darkness of the night, the futility of the fishing, suddenly Jesus turns up at dawn and transforms everything. And this story in John's gospel that we're reading mirrors a prophecy that some 600 years earlier came through Ezekiel in Ezekiel 47. At that time, God's people had been cut off from him. And if we use Jesus' analogy, they were like branches that had become mere sticks. They were no longer connected to the tree that provides life. They were in a place of darkness, of death, in exile. But God gives Ezekiel this vision of a day in the future when the salt waters of the Dead Sea will become fresh and suddenly teem with so much life. The scriptures tell us that fishermen will stand along the shores of the Dead Sea. See, God promised his dying people that were lost in the dark, that there would come a day when death would turn to life, when emptiness would turn to abundance and darkness would be turned to light. If we look back at our passage, we see Jesus was standing on the beach. The vision that Ezekiel saw starts here. As Jesus stands on the beach, death turned to life. A vast emptiness turned to an abundance of fish that's brought in as darkness is turned to day. It's in this moment that we see the resurrected Jesus as the one who is going to bring about the promises of God. He will defeat death, bring new life, and turn our fruitless emptiness into a Abundant, abundant joy. What a moment that must have been. Now, last, last week or so, I think it was last weekend, our youngest, who is now four, came into our room at about, I don't know, 10 p.m. or something like that, 11 o'clock, with those terrifying words for a parent to hear, I threw up. And she had, in multiple places, multiple times, before finding us is a solid Easter anecdote. But we embarked upon a cleanup, as you do, in the middle of the night, and then settled down to, to sleep near her. The hope, the hope against hope of it being an isolated incident wore off very quickly. It was a very long night. And it's one of those nights where in the end, all you're hoping for, for all that you have left, is for dawn to come. You just want it to end. Make it end. Because somehow the light will make it better. I want morning to just come, to see the sunlight, just peek through the blinds. Because then I know there's hope. And though there's still sort of darkness around, then you know the light is coming. We can watch cartoons. Eventually, the light wins. Every bit of darkness will be gone because the sun is rising. The resurrection of Jesus. He is the sunrise. 
He's the light dawning in this dark world. And we're still waiting, of course, for the full light of day. We still live in a world where there is darkness all around us, but the sun has risen. And so all darkness, all evil will one day be shown the light. And it's why the resurrection matters, because it tells us that dead, death is dead, that life wins. Imagine the day when Jesus returns and the sun fills the sky and darkness is chased away. Think of the day when all emptiness is filled, frustration ended when death is no more. And there on the, on the banks of Lake Galilee, Jesus' disciples got just a glimpse of it, of this miracle bursting with hope. And as, as the disciples are busy trying to haul in these nets, one of them realizes the figure on the beach at dawn is the Lord, it's Jesus. Verse seven, the disciple that Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic for his strip for work. He jumped into the water and he headed to shore. Peter can't wait to get to Jesus. But on the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter denied knowing him three times. The weight of that must have meant that failure was going around and around in his head. Peter had wept over it. He was broken by it. He was destroyed by it. You'd expect Peter's response, his failure to that response, to, to stay in the boat. There would be a reason to stay away from Jesus. That's what you would expect. But three years earlier, a similar event took place. Jesus' ministry was just beginning. Peter was out fishing. The same thing happened. They didn't catch anything. And Jesus sends them back out. And the same thing happens. Catch so many fish, the nets nearly break. And at that time, three years ago, Peter's response is to fall at Jesus' feet and say, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Because Peter's failure brought guilt. And it brought shame. And the, the thought that he had was that, that that result must be a separation between him and Jesus. Because of his sin, he felt too unworthy to have anything to do with Jesus. But Jesus responds differently. He tells Peter, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. So here in John 21, Peter knows his sin. He's aware of his failure doesn't try to hide this time. He doesn't wallow. He doesn't try to deal with it himself. No, instead of running from Jesus, he leans on the promise Jesus gave and he runs to him because he knows that with Jesus, there is nothing to fear. With Jesus, there's forgiveness for failures. His guilt drives him to Jesus, the friend who forgives. And Jesus stands there on the shore, just watching it all unfold. His heart bursting with joy as he sees his failed friend in the water just trying desperately to get to him like a lost child finally coming home. And Peter gets to the beach. He's standing there, I imagine, dripping wet. There's nothing impressive about him. He's got nothing to offer. He's got no excuses. He just comes in all his soggy sinfulness. And really, that's what it means to be a Christian to bring our soggy, sinful selves to Jesus just as we are. Because Jesus doesn't punish us for our sin and push us away. Jesus himself was crucified for our sin in order that we can reconcile with him. He took that punishment for our rebellion 
against God. So there is a hope for us, a hope for failures, a hope for those who will simply come to him in all their messiness and all their sin. There is nothing half-hearted or held back in Peter's response to seeing Jesus. It's an unrestrained, vulnerable act. He's all in. He's like, forget the fish. Forget my skills. Forget my abilities. Forget what I've done. Forget dignity. Forget identity. Forget public opinion. Forget everything. I don't even care how wet I get. All that matters is that I need to get to Jesus. The, the greatest sinners, if you like, the, those that think they have the, the, the biggest debt, they're the most passionate in their pursuit of Jesus. If we stand in the dawning light this Easter and find our love for Jesus is cool or lukewarm, perhaps we've lost sight of how much we need him. Perhaps we've lost sight of, of our failure, the way that we've lived our lives for ourselves. And this Easter, I think Jesus is asking, will you pursue me again like you once did? Will you chase me as Peter did? Will you stop being a stick cut off from the tree, trying desperately to make it on your own? Instead, come to me. Draw life from me as a branch. And if you're, if you're hearing Jesus call you for the first time, can I promise you that he's on the shore? that he's calling you into a new way, a way of light, a way of life, a way of forgiveness, one that forgives your past and brings reconciliation with God, a new life with him, a way of acceptance, value, of hope, where death is not the end. He's calling you out of the boat you've built for yourself with worldly things, success, career, money, relationships. He's calling you to something bigger, something eternal, out of isolation, out of disappointment, and onto the shore, onto the beach. And for what? Our story continues. The others stayed with the boat. They pulled a loaded net onto the shore for they were only about 100 yards from the shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them. Fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon and Peter went, went aboard, dragged the net to the shore. There was 153 large fish, but the net hadn't torn. Now, come and have some breakfast, Jesus says. This is the best bit. It's not simply a ticket to heaven. It's not simply a new director. It's not simply just a fresh start. No, he says, come to breakfast. May you receive soul nourishment. Deep relationship, complete forgiveness, authentic community with him. Like a child returning home, dinner is on the table. Jesus is on the shore. Dawn is here. Hope has come. Breakfast is ready and the table is set for you. And if you want to accept that invitation to the table, it's simple. It starts by wrestling with that question, who do you say I am? It's acknowledging Jesus as the light in a dark, dark world, as the source of hope, a renewal, a seal of the covenant of reconciliation, a gift of grace and of mercy. And then, 
like the thief that hung on a cross next to Jesus, to simply believe, to run to him with full abandon. And in declaring that belief, you are welcomed into God's eternal kingdom of light. Will you pray with me? Jesus, your sacrifice was great. Our debt was paid because of your love, your compassion, your undeserved mercy you have for us. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you and we worship you for who you are, the light of the world, the vine, our savior, our friend. Jesus, help us to run to you. Inspire us with a passion so great we can't contain it. Help us to live with the knowledge of our forgiveness at the forefront of our minds. Help us respond to you in a way that honors, maybe in just a fraction, what you've done for us. Amen.